Colossians chapter 1. Well, whenever we read one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, we have to bear in mind that what we're reading is just that. It's a letter. This is not a theology professor writing a stuffy academic article for seminary students to decipher. I mean, we can treat them that way sometimes, but that's not what Paul's letters are in the New Testament. This is a pastor writing a personal letter of teaching and encouragement to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this case, Paul was writing to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae, which was about 100 miles east of the port city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And according to verse 7, the Colossian church began through the ministry of a man named Epaphras. And it's likely that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, perhaps in the city of Ephesus, since that was kind of a big gathering place in that area. But whatever the case, Epaphras is converted. He returns to his hometown of Colossae, and he begins to share the gospel with people in his hometown. And eventually, enough people are converted through him that a church is born. But later on, Epaphras Epaphras meets back up with Paul, and he informs Paul that this new church in Colossae is beginning to have some struggles. And so Paul writes the Colossian believers a letter to encourage them and to correct some wrong teaching that they were being exposed to. And that's what we have here in what we call the book of Colossians. It's just a letter that Paul wrote to this church. He begins in the first two verses with a customary introduction and greeting, which is very common for Paul's letters. Verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he follows that up with a statement of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 5. And that's the section that we'll be focusing on tonight. Colossians 1, 3 through 5. Let's go ahead and read that one more time. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And the first thing I want to point out here is that immediately following his introduction, Paul launches into giving thanks on behalf of these Colossian believers. And this was not a one-time thing for Paul, but it was a common feature of his letters. Every, almost every one of his letters includes some sort of thanksgiving towards the beginning of the letter. And I just want to read down through here. You don't have to look these up, but I just want to read through these just to give you a feel for this. Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 
2 Thessalonians 1.3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And again, here in Colossians 1.3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, why did I read all of those? Because I want you to see that when the Apostle Paul thought of addressing his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, the thing that came to the forefront for him was gratitude. You see that? The thing that came to the forefront was gratitude. It just naturally flowed out of him. When he sat down to write a letter to fellow believers, he couldn't help but start with thanksgiving. Over and over and over again, you see that in Paul's letters. And surely this is a test for us, isn't it? When we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ, what naturally flows out of us? Is it gratitude or grumbling? Is it thanksgiving or fault-finding? If it's not gratitude and thanksgiving, then something is wrong with our hearts, and we need the grace of the Lord then to begin to work on us to begin to change us from the inside out. Also, I think there's a lesson here in how we should relate to fellow believers in general, especially, though, when we're called upon to render correction or to deal with a difficult situation. And here's what I mean. I mentioned before that one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians was to correct some wrong teaching that they were being exposed to, and you can see that as you read through the book. But before he gets into any of that, before he begins correcting them, before he begins to deal with anything difficult or wrong about the church, he begins by thanking God for them. Think of the Corinthian church and the letter of 1 Corinthians. If there was ever a group of Christians with some serious doctrinal and moral issues, it was the Corinthians. And yet, Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians with thanksgiving. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.4 again, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And then he even goes on in Corinthians to list specific things that he's thankful for among the Corinthian believers. He goes on to say that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. In fact, it's even more amazing when you think about the fact that he thanks God. In the case of the Corinthians, he actually thanks God for some of the very things that were causing problems among the Corinthians. What was one of the issues they were facing? This whole thing of gifts and spiritual gifts and so on. He thanks God for the spiritual gifts they have. It's incredible. The lesson here for us is this. If we're going to rightly handle difficult situations with believers, especially when we're talking about having to give correction in some way, we must go into it with an attitude of thanksgiving. You know, you can fall into this thing of, you know, Lord, I really don't want to go talk to this person again about the same problem, you know, the same old problem. If that's your attitude, then you've got to stop right there, and you've got to start praising and thanking God for that person. 
Take some time to recall any signs of grace that you can think of in that person's life and start praising God for them. That will put you in the right mindset for dealing with them. And here in Colossians, we see Paul doing exactly that because what does he go on to do? He specifically thanks God for two things that he sees in the lives of these Colossian Christians. Faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. Verse 3 again, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So he thanks God because he sees those things in the lives of these Colossian believers, their faith and their love. Now, at first, we might think that these are kind of ho-hum things to thank God for. It doesn't seem very exciting. Thank God for these. I mean, we can read right over this without even stopping to give it a second thought. You know, Paul thanks God because the Colossians believe in Christ and they love the saints. All right, moving on. Big deal. But the reason why we tend to do that is because we forget just how radical, just how miraculous, and just how supernatural these two graces really are. Beloved, there is a reason, now follow me here, there's a reason why Paul thanks God for these things. We thank God for this. That might strike you as a bit odd initially. After all, it was the Colossians who believed, right? The Colossians were the ones who loved the saints. And yet, Paul doesn't congratulate the Colossians on their faith and love. You know, good going, guys. Way to believe. Way to love. Right? He thanks God for their faith and love. Why? Because faith in Christ and love for the saints are so radical and so miraculous and so supernatural that they can only be produced in someone's life by God himself. That's why. When we see a person believe the gospel and start loving people, we don't praise the person. We praise God. Why? Because God worked those things in the person. It's the only reason they're there. No one naturally believes in Christ. No one naturally believes the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. It takes the Spirit of God doing a work in someone's heart before they will ever see the gospel as anything other than foolishness. In the same way, no one just naturally loves other people. In fact, it's just the opposite, isn't it? In Titus 3, Paul says that lost people spend their lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And that cannot change, and it will not change, until God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, a heart that can feel, a heart that can love for the first time. Paul never ceased to be amazed when someone believed the gospel, and neither should we. I mean, on the one hand, you expect, we ought to expect people to be saved when the gospel goes out. But on the other hand, 
it's still a, mir- a miracle every time it happens. Because it takes God reaching down from heaven and giving understanding, giving a new heart. Paul never ceased to be amazed when he saw someone begin to really and truly love others. And neither should we. Paul thanked God when he saw these evidences of grace in people's lives. And we ought to do the same. One more point here before we move on. Even though Paul thanked God for the Colossians' faith and love, he still told the Colossians about it. Right? He could have just thanked God in secret for the Colossians' faith and love and been done with it. But he doesn't do that. He tells these believers, he tells them that he thanked God for their faith and love. In other words, Paul specifically pointed out evidences of grace in people's lives, and then he told them that he was thankful to God for those evidences of grace. He told fellow believers that he saw God at work in their lives in specific ways and that he was thankful for it. Now, why would he do that? Because it's not just here in Colossians. He does this all the time in his letters. Why would he do that? And I think the answer is, at least one of the answers, is because we as Christians often need to be reminded that God really is at work in our lives. Oftentimes, we don't see it. Many times, most of the time, we don't see it. All we see in ourselves is failure and sin. But others see the reality that even though we have a long way to go, the Lord really is changing us. He really is. Slowly but surely, becoming more like Christ, trusting the Lord more fully, loving others more sacrificially, bearing real fruit unto the Lord. We don't see that many times. Other people do. Paul did, and he pointed it out to believers that he wrote to. Now, imagine the change that could take place in our church, in our marriages, in our friendships, if we made it a point to acknowledge evidences of grace in other people's lives and to thank God for those signs of grace and then tell the person that we thanked God for them. In connection with this, I thought of a quote from Tim Challies, who's a writer and a pastor in Toronto, Ontario. And he said this. He said, at Grace Fellowship Church, which is where he's an elder, at Grace Fellowship Church, we have tried to be deliberate in creating a culture of encouragement rather than discouragement, a culture where we have trained ourselves to be deliberate in pointing to evidences of God's grace in the lives of other Christians. At times, our small groups even pause to focus on just one person and to tell that person some of what we've seen of the Lord's grace in their lives. This is not paying a person compliments, but rather verbalizing how we have seen God's grace evident in their lives. It is a practice that generates humility, not pride. Doesn't that sound like a blessing to do that? Why don't we do more of that? Why don't I do more of that? Because as Charlie says there, it's definitely something that you have to be deliberate about. You've got to be deliberately seeking to do that. You have to work at it. 
but the fruit of it could be wonderful for the church as a whole and for individual marriages and friendships within the church. I was talking once to one of the the elders down there in Louisville, one of Ryan's co-pastors, and he was talking about doing what he calls gospeling his wife. And uh, what he does is when his wife gets discouraged about something, and I think the example that he used was she you know, had snapped at the kids that day or something, and she felt really discouraged by it. And he'll sit down with her and he'll say, yeah, honey, but remember yesterday when the kids were doing the same thing and you responded with love and kindness and gentleness? Where did that come from? It came from God. He's working in you. you know, And just pointing her back to the signs, the evidences of grace in her life. And it helps so much. He's, he said that it's just caused her to flower and bloom as a Christian doing that. So next time that you read any of Paul's letters, take note of how often he points out specific evidences of grace in the lives of the people that he's writing to. It's all over the place. And may the Lord help us to do more of the same. Well, lastly tonight, I want us to consider verse 5 here. Let's go ahead, though, and read 3 through 5 once again. Colossians 1, 3 through 5. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now notice here that verse 5 begins with the word because, which links it back to the previous verse. And back in verse 4, Paul had mentioned the love that these Colossians have for all the saints. And then he says that this love is because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. You see that? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, we had said earlier that the ultimate cause of someone beginning to love others is the work of God in their heart, and that's true. Taking out the heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, a heart that can love other people. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul even tells the Thessalonians that it's God himself. He's the very one who teaches you to love one another. Love begins with the work of God. But here in Colossians 1.5, Paul gives us an insight into how ongoing love for the saints is fueled and sustained. Now, follow me here, because this is important. He gives us an insight here into how ongoing love for the saints is fueled and sustained, and that is with hope. Hope. The love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see the connection there? And I hope I can get this across. This is a real blessing to me today. The idea of hope here is not a feeling of hope. It's the thing hoped for. It's objective. The hoped for object, you might say. Waiting for us in heaven. In other words, love for the saints is not sustained by looking forward to a hopeful feeling that we're going to have in heaven someday. 
It's like one day I'm going to feel really hopeful, therefore that helps me now to love people. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Love for the saints is sustained by looking forward to something that is waiting for us in heaven. Some object that is laid up for us there. Laid up is the idea of it's reserved, it's kind of in trust, kept there for you, waiting. Some object that is laid up for us there. And this something Paul calls the hope. The love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. All right, you follow me? So the next question then is, what is the hope, right? What is Paul talking about here? Well, we have one clue right here in the same verse, don't we? Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, this is verse 5, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So whatever this hope is, it's something that they heard about when they heard the gospel. Okay? But I think we have an even better clue down in verse 27 of this same chapter. Notice what Paul says here. What is the hope that Paul's referring to here that's laid up in heaven? Well, notice verse 27 of Colossians 1. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see it? Christ, the hope. What is the hope laid up for us in heaven? The hope is Christ himself. He's the hope. He's the object that we're looking to. He himself is the hope of glory. He himself is the hope laid up for us in heaven. He himself is our heavenly inheritance that Peter says is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. It's Christ, the hope. <laughs> and I think this is confirmed for us by 1 Timothy 1.1. Listen to this verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. <laughs> right? It's like you can... There, they're parallel, they're synonymous with one another. They equal each other. Christ Jesus, our hope. Again, he is the hope. He's our hope. Laid up, reserved, waiting for us in heaven. Now, putting this all together, what does this mean then for Colossians 1, 4 through 5? Well, here's the upshot of all this. Our love for the saints is fueled with and sustained by our remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ by remembering that he is waiting for us in glory by meditating on the relationship that we will enjoy with him there. I think that's kind of a long paraphrase of it, but that's the idea that Paul's trying to get across. The love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope of being with the Lord. He is the hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, namely, Christ himself and a glorious relationship with him there. Now, what does this mean? What difference does this make practically? Just a couple of applications here, and then we'll close. 
First of all, this means that when I seek to love a fellow believer, I'm not ultimately looking directly at the believer. I'm looking to Christ and my relationship with him. And then I'm seeking to love my fellow believer out of an overflow of the love between myself and the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. The love you have for all the saints because of the hope. Because of the hope. That's where this love comes from. That's how this love is sustained. Love for the saints is sustained by vertical love between you and Christ. So when I seek to love a fellow believer, I'm not ultimately looking directly at the believer. First and foremost, I'm looking to Christ. And my love for believers flows out of that horizontally. You see, there's a very good reason why the first great commandment is love to God and the second is love to man. Because the vertical always comes first. It's always primary. Everything else flows out of this love relationship. Love to God first and then love to neighbor. Let me say it another way. When I seek to love a fellow believer, I don't first analyze them to see if they're worthy of my love. Do they measure up? Do they deserve my love? Do they meet my needs and therefore I'll love? No. My perception of them has nothing to do with it. Because I'm not looking at them. I'm looking to Christ. It's the worldly man who demands that someone needs to measure up before he'll love them. That's not Christian. That's demonic. You meet my needs and then I'll love. You measure up to my standard and then you'll earn my love. This truth also means that when I'm struggling with love towards a fellow saint, it's because there's a problem between me and the Lord first and foremost. Again, the vertical always goes first. The vertical comes before the horizontal. So if there's something not right in a horizontal relationship, whether it's friend, wife, husband, whatever, if there's something wrong in a horizontal relationship, the answer is not to first scrutinize the horizontal relationship. The answer is first to consider my vertical relationship with the Lord. How are things doing there? That's where you go first. Am I rejoicing in the Lord as I ought to? Am I fixing my gaze on the Lord Jesus? Am I filling my mind and heart with thoughts of Him and the relationship that I have with Him and will have with Him in glory? If the vertical is dealt with, the horizontal will follow suit. Again, love to God and then love to man, right? It's the divine order. Our love for the saints is fueled with and sustained by our remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. By remembering that he is waiting for us in glory, by meditating on the relationship that we will enjoy with him there. The love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And by doing so, we'll be free to love. Free to love. It won't bother us when someone fails us because we aren't looking to them for our ultimate satisfaction in the first place. 
We're looking to Christ. We won't get put out with people when they let us down because we know that Christ Jesus never lets us down. We can continue to love people who wrong us because we know that the Lord will one day right every wrong for his people. And we can love sacrificially, expecting nothing in return because we know that we will be paid back a thousandfold when we meet the Lord in glory. You see how this frees you to love? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, it frees you to love other people. Again, Colossians 1.3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Well, amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that there is yet more light to come forth from your word. I think of how often I've read these verses and never really been struck by some of these things until recently. I thank you for that and just pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to change us, to cause us to love you, to cause us to fix our eyes on the hope laid up for us in heaven, on Christ, the hope of glory. Lord, fill our hearts with him. We know that if that's the case, they will overflow in love to others. It won't be a problem. Lord, we pray, help us. Strengthen us by your spirit. Fill us with your spirit and cause us to love, even as Christ has loved us. In Jesus' name.